Take your Bibles, if you would, and join me in the book of Matthew, chapter number five. Matthew, chapter number five. As we um, get started here today, we're going to be opening up, um, this is the beginning or the introduction of what is often called the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you, Roy. Um, which you'll see why, I think, um, in just a moment. We've made very obvious to you in Matthew chapter number five. And um, as we jump into it today, this is, um, it's going to be a little bit different the way that we're jumping into the next few, um, next several weeks. So Matthew, as uh, if you've been with us before, if you've been with us in the last few weeks, Matthew starts off with, um, as most good stories do, with an introduction, right? And so he goes through the first few chapters and he speaks of who Jesus is. He speaks of where Jesus came from. Kind of an origin story of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, or the anointed one. And so as we began the study, we went through those introductory things and then we saw John the Baptist, who was the predecessor of Christ, the one who came to prepare the way, and he began to call for repentance and uh, making straight of paths for the Christ that was to come. And then even there, in Matthew chapter number three, we went to the baptism of Christ. And then um, a couple of weeks ago, chapter four, we see the temptation of Jesus. How even though you and I and any other human being on the planet, we give into temptation, Jesus was the one who conquered temptation, who in the face of it, he was able to deny himself and he was able to overcome that. And so we see this righteousness, this holiness demonstrated at the end of chapter four, which we were in last week, we saw the call of Jesus to his first followers as he went and he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And we broke down that simple but profound statement of Jesus. And then here, as we transition into chapter number five, we begin uh, one of the five discourses that Jesus gives in the book of Matthew. So five times throughout the book of Matthew, there is a segment that is dedicated to a saying or a teaching of Jesus. That's a little bit longer than just a verse or two. It's more of a, a sermon that's presented. This is the longest of those sermons. It actually extends all the way through chapter number seven. And so we'll be breaking this down piece by piece over the next several weeks. And so this is the first of those. But before we get into the content of the Sermon on the Mount, I want to look at just what's taking place here as we open up to Matthew chapter number five. Um, What's the the setting that all of this is happening within? Well, let's back up to chapter number four in verse number 23 and just give a little bit of a refresher, this transition into the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 23 of chapter four, Matthew records, he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And so what is he doing? What's happening in this, in the synagogues, these places where they would meet um, for religious gatherings on a weekly basis, they would come together and Jesus, he was going and began to teach. What did he begin to teach? He began to teach the gospel of the kingdom and the healing of every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them. And so what happens in verse 25? Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. And so um, as would be expected, this man is going through and he is healing sick and he is healing those who are paralyzed, those who are lame, those who have all sorts of afflictions. Well, what happens? People begin to crowd him, right? People begin to flock to this. 
Uh, When we see something like that, when we hear about something that almost seems too good to be true, uh, people begin to check it out. They begin to say, what's taking place there? What's happening? And so they began to follow after Jesus. And so when this crowd gathers, what does Jesus do? Well, we find in chapter number five that he sees this multitude, sees this crowd in verse number one. And as he does this, he went up to the mountain, up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And in verse two, he opened his mouth and taught them saying, and throughout, so throughout the book of Matthew, I mentioned a moment ago, there are five major discourses, five major sermons that are, that break up this book. And they're all attached through um, narrative themes and through stories of Jesus. And so here in this first one, he begins this teaching. This is really the first time that we see Jesus teaching. We've seen him call his disciples. We've seen um, the statement that he's preached repentance. But this is the first time that we actually have recorded the message that he is preaching as he is traveling and as he is communicating with these people. And so Matthew begins the Sermon on the Mount with what's often called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. Um, And we won't go into all of why it's called that necessarily, except there are attitudes that we should have or that we should be. Maybe, right? These are attitudes that we should be embodying, but let's look here at how Jesus actually begins to say this. So very beginning, right out of the gate, the first thing that he opens his mouth and says, according to Matthew in this recording, is this, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And he begins all of this, first of all, um, who wants to be poor in anything, right? Like poor is the thing you don't want, right? Um, If someone were to come up to you and ask you, how are you doing? Most of the time, what do we say? I'm good. I'm okay. I'm all right. How many of us, we just, our standard answer is I am poor. No, like that's not something that we want to identify ourselves with. Poor is generally speaking, not a positive thing that we desire to be. But Jesus begins with this, and it sets the theme for the rest of the discourse. Also, he begins with this first word, blessed. And as he says blessed, there are some um, that would render this word or interpret this word as meaning happy, and certainly there is a sense of happiness that goes along with it. But this term blessed, and very uh, more formally speaking, means having the approval or having the affirmation of God. That sounds lofty, doesn't it? having the affirmation, having the approval of God. But really what Matthew is doing by setting all of this up and what Jesus is doing, speaking all of these things at the very beginning, is he's really putting into the believer's mind and to the follower's mind, those who are hearing this sermon, he's saying, here is the point, here is the question that you ought to be asking. Um, sometimes, how many of you, you have a teacher in your life that you just remember this teacher, elementary school, high school, college, and this teacher just made a big impact on you. Um, I had a few teachers that were like that. One of the things I've noticed about those teachers is they are great at making us curious. They're great at stirring up questions inside of us, even questions maybe that we didn't know we had. And really what Jesus is doing here is he's beginning by saying the favor of God can be upon you. The favor of God can be on you, which begs the question, how do we receive the favor of God? How do we receive the favor of God? These people that are following after Jesus, they're seeing Jesus do what? Oh, we just read at the end of chapter four, he's healing. 
He's doing miracles. He's making lame walk. He's making blind see. He's doing all of these things that we know that Jesus had done throughout his ministry. And so people are coming from Jerusalem. They're coming from all of Syria. They're coming from all of Judea. They're traveling for miles and miles. And understand this. Um, this isn't just like us jumping in a car and heading to Detroit or heading to Toledo. This is walking a great distance, committing time and energy and resources to go find the one who obviously has the faith of God on his life. They are flocking to the teaching of Jesus as they begin to see these signs. And they say, maybe even though there's no hope for me from the physicians or from the doctors or from these other peoples in the day, there might be hope in him. And so they come to him seeking out the favor of God. And he begins by giving these instructions. How then, how then do we receive the favor of God? In many ways, this is a question that all religions attempt to answer. All religions try to come and try to say, this is how we earn God's approval. This is how we work hard enough for God's approval. This is how we behave in such a way that God will approve of us. But the way that Jesus introduces this is really counterintuitive because he doesn't step in and he doesn't say the favor of God rests on those people who do their very best. He doesn't come in and doesn't say they work hard enough or they are good enough or smart enough or wealthy enough. Instead, he begins with blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, that's not what anyone is expecting to hear, right? Jesus, give us some great truth. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But even as we begin and as we step in here, we have to understand that God's kingdom is counterintuitive. God's kingdom is is counterintuitive. It's not like you or I would frame it up and design it to be. If we had a way to design all these things and to, if we were in the place of God, surely it would look a lot different. But can we all just take a moment and be grateful for the fact that it's not the way that we would design it, but it's actually the way that God designed it. Because as we've said so many times before, we all make terrible gods. But the kingdom of God is very uh, different than the way that you or I would imagine it ourselves. One uh, pastor said it this way, A.W. Tozer, he said, a fairly accurate description of the human race might be furnished one, unacqu- uh, might be furnished one unacquainted with it by taking the Beatitudes, so these things that we're about to read, turning them wrong side out and saying, here is your human race. In other words, if you were to take the Beatitudes turn them on their head, and that's the kind of kingdom that most of us would probably want. But that takes place as we're going to explore as a result of our sin. Our sin and our pride doesn't desire these things that Jesus is about to open up with. And so he doesn't open his sermon with things that are easy to hear and makes people feel good about themselves. And he opens it instead in such a way as to say, This is going to be a difficult saying, and this is going to be something that many are not going to want to hear. And so instead, he opens with this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So then as he's beginning to preach and teach, we see at the end of verse chapter number four, the message that he's preaching is the message of the kingdom, right? 
He's preaching the kingdom of God is here. What's the kingdom of God? Well, simply defined, the kingdom of God is the place where God reigns. Or the place where God is king. That's the simple definition. The kingdom of God is the place where God is king. So where God is king and where God rules and where God has his way, there blessed or favored are the poor in spirit. There blessed or favored are those who are poor. Not those who are rich. Not those who have all of these things, but those who are broken and are without. And what is the promise that he gives? Because as he goes through these beatitudes, he begins all of them with blessed or favored by God. And then he closes them all by saying that they will have a promise or a benefit that is attached to this attitude. And so what we find is that blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so as they are blessed, what's taking place here? You see, the kingdom of God is not brought about on the basis of race, not brought about on a basis basis of social class, not brought about by any of our merits, which is a good thing. But instead, he promises the kingdom of God to those that are poor, but not necessarily materially poor, but poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? The one who is poor in spirit thinks little of themselves. Now, does that mean that we're always down on ourselves? Does that mean Eeyore is like the epitome of poor in spirit and woe is me? I'm gonna... Is that poor in spirit? Well, that's not what Jesus is talking about. But it's not necessarily the one that thinks less of themselves, but really what poor in spirit is, is poor in spirit is thinking of ourselves less. So the question doesn't come up, who am I and what am I? The question is, oh yeah, right, I forgot about me. The one who is poor in spirit has emptied out themselves for others. But that's not the way that we're taught and that we like to do things. Instead, what's one of our favorite words? I is. I am one of my, I, me. I don't like that. I'm not sure how I feel about that, right? But what is Jesus saying? Very beginning, right out of the gate, blessed are those who empty themselves of that. Blessed blessed are those who are poor in their spirit. And so here, as Jesus begins to preach the gospel, we have to understand that the message of the kingdom is given to the poor. D.A. Carson said that it was given to the poor, the publicans, the prostitutes, those who are so poor that they know they can offer nothing and do not try. They know they can offer nothing, so they do not try. See, those of us who are, maybe if we contradict this or if we go the opposite of this, we could say rich in spirit. If we are rich in spirit, then we come to God and we say, God, look at the ways that I am able to earn your favor. Look at the ways that I deserve to be blessed. As if God's economy is an economy of exchanges uh, where we come in and we say, God, let me purchase your favor with my goodness. Jesus says, hey, the people who are welcome here are the poor. The people who are welcome here know that they have nothing to offer. And so they do not try, but rather they lean on the mercy of a great God And he shows it and demonstrates it to them. But not only that, we have a few of these to move through. So we're going to go through these uh, much more quicker than they probably deserve. And so I would encourage you, anytime that we open up the word of God, there's so much more that's taking place. And we try to focus on the big picture and bring application. 
But I'd encourage you to open up the word for yourself this week, to dig into it and to explore what these things mean at a deeper level. Because in verse number four, we see blessed are those who mourn. Okay, wait a second. The favor of God is first on the poor in spirit, and then on those who are mourning, weeping, crying. Is this sounding, is this sounding like what we want right now? Is this the kingdom that we would set up? We want a group of people who are poor and crying. Is that a group that you want to be around? <laughs> What's happening here? As Jesus speaks, he speaks of those who are weeping. And most, uh, most likely what he's referring to here is he's referring to weeping at the state of the world that we live in. Now, I think we could probably all relate to that to some degree, right? But really, it goes beneath the surface of that. Because the fact is that the world that we lived in and the world that Jesus lived in, that he stepped into as well, is broken and marred and damaged and destroyed by sin. Sin breaks everything it touches. It corrupts, it decays, and it destroys. And it doesn't take us very long to look around and realize the way that sin is doing that within our own world, but not only just within the world at large, but even within our own lives. You see, not only is there sin that exists within the world, but there's sin that exists within you and within me. And that same sin separates us from God and brings us into condemnation. But what we find is that here, Jesus promises that those who mourn, what does he say? They'll be comforted. So mourning is not the end of the story. You see, as we walk through difficult circumstances, there are times in life that we mourn, right? Uh, Ecclesiastes. Um, This great book of wisdom says, hey, there's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn. It exists. It happens. We've all experienced that. There are those in this room that in recent days, you've experienced times of mourning. They happen. They exist. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what is the promise to those who mourn in Christ? They'll be comforted. They'll be comforted. In the book of John, chapter number 14, Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'm not going to leave you without a comforter. And in fact, one of the uh, most well-known verses in all of Scripture, John chapter 11, verse 35, known for being the shortest verse in all of the Bible, simply states, Jesus wept. You see, Jesus isn't here asking of things that you and I to give to him that he's not willing to do himself. But didn't Jesus weep? Didn't Jesus mourn? Didn't he look around and see the brokenheartedness and the sorrows of those around him? And didn't he cry as well? And even uh, the night before his crucifixion, we find him in the garden, weeping and sweating in prayer over the things that were about to take place. You see, the heart of Jesus is not a cold, calloused heart that is distant and removed from sinners like you and I. The heart of Jesus for us, is it's close with us. He describes himself as being gentle and as being lowly. You see, Jesus is poor in spirit. Jesus mourns with us. And he promises here comfort. Not only that, but blessed or favored are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This word meek um, is a word that sometimes I think we've uh, confused with um, one that sounds like it, weak. Um, But meekness and weakness are not the same thing. They're not synonyms. They just sound similar. And in fact, uh, Moses was called one of the meekest men who ever lived. And Moses led a uh, traveling group of about 2 million people. 
Um, and so if that's weakness, then fine, sign me up, okay? Because Moses was a meek man. We know that Jesus even here was a meek man. But what is meekness? Meekness simply defined as this, power under control. A meek individual doesn't have to assert themselves every time they feel like they can. But we like to do that, don't we? We love to get our own way. Any control freaks in here? All right. Couple of us. We love to get our own way. And when we can't get our way, what do we do? So often we, ah, we try to throw our weight around or figure out how we can get the things that we want. Well, meekness is the opposite of that. Meekness says, I could get what I want, but I'm going to take a step back. Because I don't have to get what I want. I don't have to do things my own way. I don't have to assert myself into these things. That's meekness. Meekness. And Jesus even continues. And what does he say? What's the promise to the meek? He said, the meek will inherit the earth. Wait a second. The people that don't assert themselves are going to get everything. Because when we think of people who have power and influence, when we look at the politics of our day, how often do we see meekness embodied in the upper echelons of influence and power? Ever? <laughs> No, what do we see? We see people that desire power. They desire influence from all across the spectrum, right? They desire more and they desire for their name to be known. But Jesus says, hey, listen, if you're going to be my disciples, that's not how you're going to behave. You will be an embodiment of meekness. You don't have to insist on things being your way. That's who will inherit the earth. And then he, uh, in the, the fourth of these attitudes, he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Remember just a few uh, chapters, really just a, a chapter before. Satan came to Jesus as he's in the wilderness. This temptation was brought about. And what was the first of these temptations that Satan brought to Jesus? He said, take these stones and turn them to bread. He said, Jesus, you're hungry. Jesus, you desire uh, to be satisfied, to be filled. And then what does Jesus, how does Jesus respond? He says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He was embodying a hunger and thirst, not for bread, but a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now we all understand hungering and thirsting, right? Anybody hungry right now? All right. Not just me. Good. Okay. Awesome. It happens. I just lost you all. All right. Great. <laughs> They're ordering your lunch and all that. That's cool. That's all right. My feelings aren't hurt. Um, we all know what it feels like to be hungry. Have you ever been at the point where you were just so hungry that like someone set down food in front of you and you just like inhaled it, right? We've been there. Um, I, I don't practice intermittent fasting, but sometimes I practice what I call accidental fasting, um, where I forget to eat a meal throughout the day because I'm just going and going and going. And then at the end of the day, what happens? You sit down and someone puts food in front of you or you go to a restaurant and you order this. And then, I mean, you, you blink and it's gone, Right? Because you're just insatiably hungry. Uh, when you're hungry, what do you think about? <laughs> I mean, that's it, right? When we're hungry, you're not sitting there going, man, the weather's so nice today. We don't sit here and we don't go, wow, I'm really so grateful for blank. When we're hungry, we are 
hungry. And if you get hungry enough, you become hangry, right? And then you get angry and hungry because you just want food. Nothing else satisfies when you want food, right? My kids, they'll be like, dad, I'm hungry. Be like, drink some water. We'll get food in a few minutes, right? Dad, I'm hungry. Like you don't understand. Well, Jesus here is using this as an illustration. He says, blessed are those who what? Who hunger and thirst. I mean, when we hunger and thirst, we hunger and thirst. Nothing else fills that void. Nothing else fills that gap. We can have the clothing. We can have the air conditioning just right. We can have the beautiful scenery. But if you're hungry and you're thirsty, you're still hungry and thirsty. Nothing else plugs in there until you are fed, until you have a drink. But what is Jesus calling us to hunger and thirst for? For righteousness. For the things of God. For the things that don't burn up and wither away. Understand this. There's nothing else that will satisfy the hunger and thirst for righteousness. You can plug in sports teams. You can plug in, um, you can plug in finances. You can plug in jobs. You can plug in doing good things even. You can plug in family. You can name it. And you plug that in and you're still going to be missing something. Because you and I were designed to serve a creator. We were designed for worship, for something greater than and bigger than ourselves. And so Jesus says, blessed are those, favored are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what is his promise to them? They will be satisfied. They'll be satisfied. How great is it when we're starving, we're hungry, we just, we're famished, we need something. And then finally they set down in front of us that food that we order that we've been waiting for 45 minutes for. And it's here. I mean, is there a more satisfying feeling, right? And you sit down, you eat that, and then you're just, you're done. You're finished. The belly is full. The thing had been growling at you for so long, satisfied. Well, Jesus says, again, in the book of John, chapter number four, he's speaking to a Samaritan woman, a woman who had been married five times, a woman who was now living with a man who was not her husband, um, especially in the day and age. She, so she was, in her culture, she was an outcast. But Jesus is sitting down, he's talking with her, and he says, hey, listen, I can give you water, but the water that I can give you, um, you drink it, you'll never thirst again. What's he saying? He's saying you'll be satisfied. You'll be satisfied. What a great blessing. If the thing you hunger and thirst for is righteousness, you can be satisfied. Let's keep going here. Verse number seven. He said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We like mercy when it's mercy towards us, don't we? We don't like mercy necessarily when it's mercy towards others. And we especially don't like mercy when it's applied to someone who did wrong to us, do we? Them mercy? How dare you? With my kids, um, you know, we've been working through, um, my daughters are four and five. And so we've been working through um, some of the lying phase. Anybody's kids ever do that? All right. Um, They've been working through, if they can figure out, they're trying to figure out what they can get away with, right? And so they don't mind telling on their sister if it means the sister gets punished instead of them, right? They'll be like, no, 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 I didn't do it. They did it. Be like, okay, well, your sister's going to get in trouble for doing this. Okay. And as a parent, like I've known who's right and wrong, and I've been like, I'm just going to see where this goes. Let's just see what happens here. (laughs) 
you know, I'm not going to discipline them, but I'm going to talk about it for a second here. And we're like, okay, I'm going to go out of this room and your sister's going to be disciplined. Okay. What? <laughs> What's wrong with you? Because in ourselves, like we're like mercy. We're like, oh, if I do something wrong, the officer pulls me over for cutting someone off. I don't want a ticket for that. But when the officer, when the lights go on and the guy pulled me, the guy uh, cut me off and he gets pulled over. <laughs> I mean, we've been there. We like mercy when it applies to us and to our friends. But we don't, we don't really like the idea of mercy, broadly speaking. But here Jesus says, blessed, favored are the merciful. Why? Because those are the ones who obtain mercy. You give mercy, you get mercy. Mercy is something that's ingrained within the follower of Jesus. But not only that, look at verse number eight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Uh, one uh, teacher that I had, he explained it this way. He said, the, the heart is the lens through which we view God. So a pure heart is going to give us a clear reflection of God. An impure heart is going to give us a reflection that doesn't fully grasp and doesn't understand who God is. But even here, as we're called to be pure in heart, there are a couple of things that I believe are reflected in this. First, as we saw the hungering and thirsting for righteousness, this is a heart that desires after righteousness. This is a heart that is clean from sin, that is uh, not seeking after those things. But also, when we look at a, a lens, one of the things that can take place within a lens, um, if you ever worked with a camera, if you wear glasses, one of the most frustrating things in the world is when you get a scratch in your glasses, right? Because then the rest of the world has that scratch on your glasses. Now, the rest of the world, you just, there's that line that goes across, the light hits it just right, and it's frustrating, infuriating at times. Well, you see, as we entertain sin, that impurity into our lives and into our hearts, that distorts our view of God. When we live in a lifestyle, when we allow these things to take place and to set roots into our heart, when we allow bitterness to set up shop, uh, when we allow um, deceitfulness to, to come in and to have a corner, you see, it changes the lens through which we view the world. And it changes the lens through which we view God. You want to see God for who he is? Be pure in heart. You want to understand God for who he is? Lay those things aside. And then watch as we're almost through this list. He says, blessed are the peacemakers in verse number nine. For they shall be called the sons of God. <laughs> in this day, in the culture that, um, that Jesus is speaking these words, Israel is a conquered people. Um, they're living in a subjugation to the Roman Empire. They're allowed to practice their religion, but there's still a lot of things that are imposed on them. And these are very, you have to remember, first century Judaism, very proud tradition, very proud people, very proud culture. Um, and so living in a place where you constantly look up and see Roman guards, where you constantly see symbols and pictures and figureheads of Rome, not an easy thing to do. In fact, there was a group of people, including um, one of the disciples of Jesus for a time, had been a member of this group called the Zealots, the Zealots. And the Zealots were um, this uh, kind of underground militia type people who were uh, pushing for and trying to move towards the eradication of Roman settlement and encampment there in Israel. So they were trying, they wanted to free Israel from the Romans. And so these zealots 
were all about overthrowing Rome or getting Rome out of their territory, whatever it was going to take. And so these zealots were committed to this. And then here, this is not an insignificant group of people. Surely there were those who would have been following after Jesus, who would have subscribed to this belief system. And then Jesus gets up and says, blessed are the peacemakers. In Israel this day, not many people wanted peace. They wanted autonomy. They wanted to be able to do things their own way. They wanted to be able to rule themselves and govern themselves. But Jesus here calls out and he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, what is he speaking of when he speaks of peacemaking? Is he speaking of compromising things that make up the belief that he is preaching? No. But what he is saying is this. He's saying when we are at ought with those who are beside us, when we are in tension with those around us, what are we called to do? Make peace, right? But we oftentimes, um, if you've, you've been around long enough, um, making peace is a lot easier said than done, isn't it? Because when it comes to conflict that we have between uh, each other, or we have between a friend or a family member, when it comes to that conflict, we never want to do what? We never want to admit that we are right, because we're always right. We're never wrong. But we don't want to have to say it out loud. No, listen, we never want to admit that we are the ones who did wrong. But what does peacemaking do? Peacemaking requires that we take at least some responsibility for the things that take place, doesn't it? Because you and I are, starts with an S, ends with inners, all right? We are sinners, which means that even in the times when we are right, we are also really good at being right and wrong. Even if we have the right idea, we go about it in the wrong way. Even though we think, even though, yes, technically speaking, we can win the fight and then we can lose the battle, right? Uh, With our spouses, what do we do when we know we're right? I know I put my socks in the right place or whatever it is. I know I did this. And then all of a sudden, like five minutes later, you find yourself in tension with your spouse over like the dumbest, pettiest thing, right? Because we're not naturally peacemakers. Or if we do admit wrong, we're just, what do we do? We, we, we okay, yep, you're always right. <laughs> None of us have ever done that before, have we? But what does Jesus bless? Who's the favor of God rest on? The genuine, the sincere peacemakers. And what is the promise that he gives to them? He said, they will be called the sons of God. And then watch this. He opens and closes with the same promise we're going to see in a minute. A promise of the inheritance of the kingdom of God. But watch what happens in verse number 10. Because I think the first um, of these promises, the first of these beatitudes, and the last one might be the most difficult for us to swallow. Watch what he says. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, here, what does he do? He transitions from peacemaking to persecution. And the fact is, is that the peacemaker is not always welcome. And in fact, opposition is normal for the life of a follower of Jesus. And so what does he say? He says, those blessed are those, favored are those, persecuted. Why? For righteousness' sake. But really, this call is not a surprise to us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, a German theologian who lived um, through the Second World War, 
um, and it was eventually um, executed by the Nazi regime. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he, he says this. He says, discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. It is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of his grace. Can I just remind you about the reason that we gather together? It's not because Jesus was a good teacher. It's not because of the miracles that Jesus did. We gather together because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which consists of the good news of Jesus, consists of the death and the burial of Jesus prior to that resurrection. We serve a suffering Savior. Yet oftentimes, we desire a faith that never endures hardship. If someone said, I could give you a life that you never walked through any difficulty, so many of us, sign me up, right? But we follow a Savior who suffered. The model for us is one who, who, who suffered, and he died on our behalf. So why would we be exempt from it? In another writing, Bonhoeffer says this. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Last week, as we read through and we saw Jesus say, follow me. Did Peter know where following Jesus would get him? Did Andrew know where following Jesus would get him? James and John. We read about James' death in scripture, Acts chapter number 12. He's killed by one of the Herods. Uh, Did he know where following Jesus would get him? I mean, from Matthew 1, follow me, or Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew 4, follow me, to Acts 12. He didn't know those things that would play out, did he? But when Christ calls us, his call is come and die. Does that mean a literal death? Not necessarily, but that's a possibility, right? But it does mean this. It means a death to ourselves. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the books of the New Testament, he said, I die daily. Every day I get up and I die. That's what he says. Because what does it require to be a peacemaker? I have to die. I can't insist in my own will and my own way of doing things. What does it take to be poor in spirit? I have to empty out myself of myself. What does it take to be any of these things? These are so unnatural to us. And in fact, if the Beatitudes are the criteria for entering the kingdom, none of us are getting in, right? If the Beatitudes are a list, if if God were to say, all right, how did you do? One through eight. Boom, 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 boom. How'd you do? No, we're not getting in. Because none of us want to empty ourselves of ourselves. None of us desire to be peacemakers. None of us desire mercy to those who have wronged us. None of us naturally come across these things. And that's not the point of the writing here. It's not to show us that you can be favored of God by being so good anything. Because you cannot be. But rather, the favor of God comes through Jesus. You see, as we realize that we ought to be poor in spirit, as we realize that we cannot be sufficient by ourselves, that we cannot be sufficient in any way, we we contribute nothing to our salvation. And if we understand that, we're ready to come to Christ. We're ready to know him. We're ready to place our faith there. And even as we open up these first few verses, what we really find 
is that as Jesus is speaking of those who are favored of God, he also fulfills all of these things. Because who is more poor in spirit than Jesus? The son of God who calls himself lowly. Who, is, who mourns like Jesus mourns, the mourning for sinners, the mourning for those who are lost and without him? Who mourns like Jesus does? Who, who is meek like Jesus is? The creator of the world who allowed himself to be hung on a cross, allowed others to beat him and mock him. Hello, if that is not power under control, I don't know what is. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Who denied himself like Jesus did? Who hungered and thirsted after the will of God like Jesus did? No one. Uh, we continue through. Who is merciful like Jesus is? Understand that in our salvation, uh, who is the one who is showing us mercy? Who did we go against? Whose law did we violate? And yet mercy is shown to us. Who is pure in heart? Who could be more pure in heart than the one who never sinned and never knew sin? Who is a peacemaker? More than the one who made peace between you and me and God, the holy and the righteous one. Who made peace like that? And then who was persecuted for righteousness sake? Who stepped into this world, did nothing but righteousness, and yet was hated, despised, rejected, and killed? You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. And as he speaks to us, he says, hey, I have come because you cannot fulfill these. But at the same time, there's a really um, interesting theological concept and a theological phrase I want to introduce to you in conclusion today. Um, there are two words, um, opposites, antonyms of each other, um, communicable and non-communicable. Communicable and non-communicable. And communicable traits are this, are these. These are the traits of God that you and I can imitate. Now, can we imitate God's all-knowingness? No. No, none of us are all-knowing, and that's fine. We're not called to be all-knowing. Um, can we imitate God's omnipotence, his all-powerfulness? No, no, we can't. And that's absolutely a good thing. Uh, we can't mimic those things. But in the communicable, or those traits that can be emulated, we are called to follow after Christ. And so here, what we really find is that the Beatitudes are this. The gospel applied to daily living. The gospel applied to daily living. When we say things like living out the gospel, what does that mean? Jesus explains it. Because the fact is, is that the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus for you and for me ought to change the way that we live. Well, how does it change the way that we live? We just read about it because the fact is, is, if Jesus can be a peacemaker, surely he can help us to be a peacemaker. If Jesus was meek and merciful, then there must not be anything wrong with being meek and merciful. If Jesus didn't have to posture himself and puff himself up to be, uh, to proclaim him oh, his own self, if he could be poor in spirit, if the son of God could be poor in spirit, there's nothing you and I can offer that disqualify us from following after that. But the Beatitudes here are the truth of the gospel of Jesus applied to our daily life. And so just as Jesus was speaking on this occasion, uh, I believe today our audience, our crowd, maybe uh, made up similarly. Here as Jesus was speaking, there were those who were his disciples. 
They were followers of him. And then within the crowd, there were those that were maybe interested in Jesus. And so as they hear these things, they're going to hear some different things, have different degrees of understanding, and that's okay. That's, that's where Jesus is speaking from. But if you're sitting in here today, maybe you're in here, and I know a number of you personally, you would consider yourself a Christian, a committed follower of Jesus. Then our response to the Beatitudes is this. Lord, help me to live out the gospel in my life. Help me to emulate Christ in these ways. Thank you for him and fulfilling the things that I could never do and help me to embody these things. Because the fact is, as we go out into a lost culture, into a lost world, we take the truth of the gospel, but the truth of that gospel is going to flow through the conduit of you and me. God desires to use us. And so people are going to look and they're going to examine our lives And when we behave this way, there's going to be an understandable difference to the way that we interact and we act with others. We don't stop there because the gospel is not just, it's not even a change in our life uh, and our behavior, but that's a fruit of, that's a result of the work of the gospel in us. And so the Beatitudes are taking the truth of that gospel. We don't outgrow it. We don't mature beyond and say, oh, the gospel is for beginners. No, no, no. The gospel is the truth that saved us and it's the truth that we live in. And then I believe there are those in here who you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You've never said, I want to be a follower of Jesus and place my faith in his death and his burial and his resurrection. You've never done that. Well, listen, you can't keep these things and fulfill these things any better than I can. None of us can We all fall short of the glory of God. We're separated from God as a result of our sin. But Jesus, that's why we call it the good news, the gospel. He he kept all of these things. And yet he died, giving his life as a payment for you and for me. So I believe that the word of God has an impact and calls for a response from each of us today. The question is not, will you respond? It's how will you respond? Because Jesus, in his own words, is issuing an invitation. And so right here in our service in just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. And what we're doing is we're inviting you to look into your life and examine what is God calling me to in this moment? Maybe God's calling me to live out one of these things in a way that I hadn't before. Uh, maybe it's just beginning with that first one, being pure in spirit, or being uh, poor in spirit, emptying out yourself of yourself. Maybe for you, it's doing that in regards to your salvation. It's time for you to trust Christ, not to try to work and earn salvation on your own merits or on your own terms, but coming to God and saying, God, I'm not good enough, but I know one who is. So I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. And then in a moment, our praise team will come and will lead us in a song. And we encourage you to respond to God as he's moving and speaking in your life.